A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including other artists, writers, filmmakers, composers and musicians, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Megan Rooney, an artist working in performance, sculpture and painting, who's gained particular attention due to the vast murals she's made in several international museums, rich in vivid colour and energetic movement. Megan was born in 1985 and grew up first in South Africa, then in Brazil, and finally in Canada, where she gained a BA at the University of Toronto. She then moved to London, where she studied for an MA at Goldsmiths College in 2011, and she remains in the British capital today. Everything Megan does begins with the body. It's her subject, the container for feeling she translates into artistic language, and the vessel in which she's moved through the different environments of her life, from urban London to the gardens of her childhood. She observes and absorbs these experiences, which reappear as the memories she draws on in the distinct but interwoven aspects of her work. But her body also defines her art's parameters, not just in her collaborative performances, which often take place within her sculptural and painted environments, but in the scale of her work. Her paintings are identically sized and set to what she describes as the wingspan of the average woman. She also describes making her murals almost in terms of a performance. She tracks or maps the spaces she eventually transforms with paint, measuring them against her own bodily form. And while at first appearance much of her work in paint and sculpture may appear to be abstract, the body is suggested in her work in different ways, not just in the scale of her marks which she makes herself without the use of assistance, but also elements of iconography. Occasionally in her paintings you might catch what resembles an eye and its lashes lurking amid the lush, highly coloured paint. In drawing she makes every day, some of which she shows in grids in an evolving piece she calls Old Baggy Root. She translates her experience of characters in the world into expressive, quickly made faces. Her sculptures too often take on figurative shape, even if they might be made from found objects like garden umbrellas and dustbins, embellished with paint and other materials. This balance between abstraction and figuration is one of several meetings of opposites that Megan negotiates. Another is between a material toughness and rigour and the poetic and ethereal. You see this in her approach to making, a balance between the accumulation of lyrical gestures on the one hand and then the erasure of marks through scraping and even sanding. This push and pull is evident in the largest of her murals to date for the exhibition Fugues in Colour at the Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris. Called with sun, the mural, which dazzles with its hot pinks, oranges and creamy yellows, emerges from what Megan's described as a little myth that the moon was chasing the sun through the architecture when it gets dropped down the portal into my space. Many of her pieces have similarly imaginative beginnings and Megan often sees her work as a continuation of ancient narrative traditions. And it's this with which I began our conversation. What lies behind this impulse to tell stories? I don't have kind of a formal roadmap for how the storytelling enters the practice or the work. I suppose I think when I'm faced with the impossibility of trying to work out what's going to happen on a blank surface. I recall things that I've seen or experienced, memories from different places, and I try to recall those stories when I'm, when I'm faced with a blank surface, just summon them. The narratives sort of weave in and out of, I guess, the response from my body with the paint, with the surface. So it's not kind of linear. I'm not thinking of a specific story or a specific narrative that I'm trying to communicate to the viewer, but I'm trying to get the feeling of life into the surface. And do you make notes? I know that you observe things like people that you see in the street and things Mm -hmm. like that. Do you make notes or are they sort of mental notes? It's more kind of my memory bank, so trying to filter things into my memory bank and then summon those things. I don't really make descriptions. I think perhaps if I wrote down the description, I would be trying somehow to recreate that image. And I like the unreliability of memory, the way that it is inherently imperfect and, you know, imbued with your own bias. I like to 
you also pervert or, or um, exaggerate the truth um, of what I have observed. Mm-hmm. And is there also something in, if you were to write it down, it would be changing a memory into text, whereas what you're doing is translating an observation or a memory into visual language, the language of painting or sculpture or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I think I I save the storytelling for the text because obviously I do also work with text in performance. Um, And then we put that language into movement and to this is kind of a completely different side of my practice. They're sort of all woven together and I don't make huge distinctions between mediums. I'm always thinking about text when I'm painting and, and vice versa. I actually think of my sculptures as paintings and my paintings as sculptures or portals. Um, I want there to feel like a kind of physicality to the work that you could enter the painting almost as if it was, you know, kind of a gateway into somewhere else. And is there always sort of a sense when you enter a space that you know the kind of work that will work best, i.e. this is a space in which you're going to get the full Megan experience, this is going to be painting, sculpture and performance and others are very much, no, I just want to show paintings here? I mean, my work's very site-specific, so it very much depends on the project, on the institution, on where the work is being shown and the context of that. I save my murals for public institutions because I'm really interested in in the way that this can't be commodified, it can't be bought, it can't be sold, it can't be owned by anyone. And this is very much a, a response to architecture and to the specific architecture of that space because obviously no gallery space or exhibition space is ever is ever the same. They're always charged with different energies and I find this like a really fascinating proposal for me outside of my studio practice you know to take on a building is very different from how I work in the studio and can you say something about the difference in working in that way to working on a canvas because it seems to me that if you know that a work will ultimately be obliterated or erased or will no longer exist after a certain period it must be very different to when you're working on a surface that is going to potentially enter into a collection of some kind Yeah, I mean, to separate this in your mind is also quite a trickery, which usually fails for me. So I have a much longer germination process in the studio when I'm working on a group of paintings. I consider the paintings a family, so I make my paintings in a family group. They need this kind of dynamic energy to rebel and compete against each other, um, also to find the kind of pathways Uh, between strange kind of lineages. It's entirely different from painting on a wall, the directness of that um, response. And because your body has to fuse itself mentally to the machine that I work on. So I think of the murals as a kind of collaboration between my body, the machine, the cherry picker that I make my murals with, and then um, the architecture. And the architecture always has the advantage because it takes the first position. Um, And then I am creating a response to that. So I try and kind of generate similar challenges in my studio, but it's never the same scale. I really like this idea that you said about tracking the spaces that you work in when you do the murals. And this idea of kind of mapping the space with your body before you make that first mark, as it were. Tell me about that. Yeah, I don't work with um, any preparatory sketches, any plan as such. So initially, I enter the space and I spend a couple of days tracking through the space, as you said, moving, establishing pathways with my body, trying to feel like the pace of the space, the breadth of it, the light. And then I kind of launch myself, more or less, with an enormous amount of momentum to try and get something to stick on the surface initially um, because you have to create something to respond to. This for me is the hardest part. I actually really hate the beginning. Um, I prefer like an old conversation, an old friend, um, an old relationship. The, the newness I find very startling and terrifying. So I, I try and begin after the tracking as quickly as possible without too much hesitation. 
And tell me about that process then of getting beyond that, you know, that first terrifying moment of blankness into the deep evolution of the work, which involves a lot of erasure, addition, erasure, addition, this toing and froing. Tell me about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very idiosyncratic process because there's no plan, as I said, as such. You are also trying to work it out in real time as the installation period begins and comes towards an end. You are pushing towards a kind of definite deadline. This creates an enormous amount of risk. The murals exist more or less precisely because of this risk. If you don't get out in time, you end up with colossal failure or problem that somehow is inside of your mind somewhere when you are working. You can't help but know that if this inevitably goes sideways, you're going to paint yourself into you know, a big problem. Um, and the institution who's taken the opportunity to house your little dream also is very much aware that they don't know what the, the final result will be. And you don't know what the final result will be. So you're both entering into a kind of unspoken union that exists together. They share that kind of burden with you in some way. Obviously, as the maker of the work, you share more of the burden. But they also kind of have to sit and, and watch it unfold. But and you in, do it alone, don't you? You don't have assistance when you're doing it, right? No, absolutely not. I wouldn't know where to be in with assistance. I don't like anyone touching my work, actually. I don't have any assistance in my studio. Yeah, I've kind of dreamt up that every aspect of the process belongs to me and to the painting, and I'm quite yeah territorial, I suppose, about that. But because I don't paint with assistance, you also have to understand that you've got to put enough information on the surface to be able to remove it because I like to work in the negative. I like to work in the reverse. This comes from my early days as a printmaker, as an etcher. So I, I like to unearth a lot of colors that I deposit and get a kind of feeling of time in the surface. So you have to put a lot of paint on to be able to remove things to kind of create something that feels like it has depth. And you're trying to do this on a colossal scale with with no horizon line. You know, you're creating a three-dimensional universe for the viewer to step into, and your horizon is constantly changing. There is something very maddening about this. You are essentially also painting yourself a universe that as the days and weeks unfold becomes larger and larger than your body. You know, you paint yourself a colossal world. Yeah. This always sort of blows my socks off. <laughs> I'm sure it does. I wanted to talk about the sort of violent elements of that, because is it what you sandblasting, this kind of violent act on your own work? And I'm interested in your sort of feeling at that moment when you're doing that, because it must feel, again, you're talking about risk. Mm. You know, you've gone a certain distance with this work, and then you're obliterating it really quite you know, brutally. Yeah, it is quite a brutal process. And then at, at other times, it's it's incredibly delicate and nuanced and soft I think a, a good work for me what I consider a good work has to include a number of different kind of tensions and if it stays beautiful for the painting's entire journey of its life there is a kind of superficiality to it that I think I as a painter just inherently reject but I also like to work out the failures on the surface there's no way to to fool the painting if you want this kind of feeling of time that it's lived, you, you have to give it a lot of time. You have to also devote a lot of time to understanding what's happening in the life of the painting. If you're constantly sort of sanding and adding, and it's just scattershot. So it's the bizarro world of paint. It's completely loopy. Um, <laughs> and what I do to the paintings changes. It varies. Some go out of favor. Some I feel very attached to. Um, others I feel absolute rage. And I think that's just because I spend so much of my life in this conversation. And inevitably your life is always changing and evolving. So tell me about your sculptures and the way that you, you talked about them as paintings. And obviously they very often have 
literally painted elements as part of mm. them but also they have these kind of tough found materials it might be discarded elements from street furniture or um, barricades or you know dustbins that kind of thing are you sort of scouting around for materials a lot of the time and how much of that is to do with the kind of moment where you're about to exhibit it or do these sort of things hang around in your studio or no, not really. They don't hang around in my studio. Um, as you can see, my studio that we're in now is, is pretty sparse. The sculptures really evolve in dialogue with the exhibition and then where the work is being exhibited. So, for example, with the Kunsthalle Dusseldorf, this incredibly austere, kind of brutal, very strong presence the space had and it was concrete and there's a unique upstairs and downstairs position because you've got this overhang balcony that separates the two floors. And when I was initially visiting the space, doing my kind of ritual of tracking, I felt like I needed something to break this feeling of the imposing quality that it had. So I wanted to pick things from the street, from the vernacular of the, of the sidewalk, of the road, of um, the urban environment that I very much live within in London. You know, we're very central, we're very close to St. Pancras here, and so you're constantly bombarded, especially around the kind of areas, the hinterlands of my studio, with old garbage bins and old oil barrels and um, an incredible pit of information, and I love to kind of go out and observe these things, and then to try and transform them into sculptures. Um, And a lot of this happens during the actual making of the exhibition. So when I'm painting colossal wall painting, I'll be using the rags and fabrics that I am wiping and dripping and sucking paint on and off the surface, and I'll let those dry, and then I'll, you know, weeks later, assemble them over the street signs that I've collected so it's, it's kind of a combination. Part of it also is dreamed up from, from travel and from observing the streets that I find myself in. Mm-hmm. A lot of those references come from Sicily, um, which is a place that I often return to. Uh-huh. And, and in terms of the figuration that is sort of an ever-present but zooming in and zooming out of your work all the time... Tell me about that, because I'm really interested to see that sometimes you sort of clearly see an eye, for instance, in your work. And another times you can clearly identify a kind of figure within the sculpture. But at times it seems like that figuration is completely obliterated. So is that, a, again, a conscious toing and froing in the work or does it sort of seep in and out rather? I think this is very much related to my own body and a sort of attempt at a, a distant self-awareness of the self I suppose they're always lurking about because I'm always faced with my body and carrying it around and moving it about. I don't know if I consciously try and hide them so much anymore, but I think I initially buried the figures in my work because I felt a lot of hostility towards figuration when I first came to London. Um, And I was painting very figuratively at the time, and I entered Goldsmiths for my master's. And... I got the feeling that I was not going to have an easy time if I was going to continue in this vein. And so I think I subconsciously tried to sort of remove the figures from my work. Um, And then I kind of slipped into a completely different realm. But the figure for me, it is always present, you know, and I'm not trying to avoid that, let's say. People are enigmas, and I think I'm quite fascinated by the internal incomprehensibility of the humans that I'm in relationships with and engaging with and observing. And I I think to try and represent them too definitively kind of missed the whole point. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I think maybe, as you know, I was born in South Africa, um, but I was a young child when I emigrated with my family to Rio de Janeiro. And then my family moved again to Toronto. And my first recollections really with art belonged to Henry Moore. So the Art Gallery of Ontario has an incredible permanent room in its collection that houses 
nine or ten colossal Henry Moore figures. And as a child, I was completely fascinated by these sculptures. Uh, my mother would get us into the car on these really bleak, brutal Canadian winter days, which we were completely ill-prepared for coming from South America. <laughs> and we would go into the AGO, and, and the Henry Moore room was always strangely hushed. There was almost no one speaking in this room. And I just remembered my proximity and my size to these sculptures made me feel very calm. And I, I felt the kind of hand, the human hand in his work, this nuanced little marks and the kind of way that his sculptures feel like old fossils or something that you would pick up off the beach. And I, I completely was enamored with them. I was completely in love um, and I, I still visit the AGO every time I go home and go to this room um, and spend a lot of time looking and feeling and walking around. So I think I would have to say Henry Moore. And, you know, years later, I discovered that Henry Moore was the youngest of quite a few children. And he learned to sculpt by um, massaging his mother's back. So that was a wonderful thing to know about him. Yeah, that, that very nice personal connection. And, and that speaks a lot to your own work, doesn't it? Because I know that you, even though one as a viewer might not be able to detect this, you imbue a lot of your own personal experience and memory in there, as well as sort of observed reality, if you like. Yeah, exactly. And there was a kind of quiet elegance about his work that I found incredibly moving. These sort of female figures with their sort of half-stretched bodies leaning in, and the kind of solidness of this form. It felt very powerful to, to have a female body represented in this way. Did returning to the AGO as an exhibiting artist therefore mean a tremendous amount to you? It did, actually. Yeah, it was, it was, so I, I later returned to do a performance, and of course I, I picked the Henry Moore room to do my, my little performance in, and it was actually the coldest recorded day of Canadian winter in 30 years. It, it was colder than Mars outside. At the time, I was processing my suburban upbringing and trying to kind of understand high and low art and what it meant to be a maker and kind of trying to come to terms also with the, the things I didn't quite understand about where I was. Uh, so I had turned the AGO room into this kind of neon pink disaster, really. Um, and I put these huge glow day beds everywhere between Moore's sculptures. Some things that, you know, I was engaging with or looking at in nightclubs and things and couldn't make heads or tails of these environments. And I asked people to listen to an audio recording called Pleasure and Charity Sharing in the Experience. And they lay on these beds in close proximity to Moore's reclining figures listening to the audio probably wondering why the room was neon pink. Yeah, <laughs> That's great. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? I have a deep love affair with Goya. I'm not sure if that's the only answer I could provide, but I saw the black paintings at the Prada Museum when I was a youngster, and my mother explained to me that Goya had painted the black paintings directly on the walls of his house towards the end of his life when he was going deaf. And it's one of the only times I've ever cried looking at art. But I was completely overwhelmed by the rawness and the fragility and the sense of absolute terror in these paintings. But also that he was obviously painting them for himself. Mm. And I think in some way I would think about that a lot later and still think about that when I'm painting directly on the wall this is when I really paint for myself. They have an extraordinary physicality, don't they, the black paintings? It's obviously because he's wrestling with that very surface, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, late Rembrandt for me is also something that's particularly special, especially here in London. So I go to the National Gallery a lot and I see late Rembrandt's self-portrait when he's really examining himself and he's got this frail old man um, looking back at us and the you know, the little highlight on the, the side of his nose, which 
more or less holds the entire painting together. And if you remove it, it becomes inexplicably flat. Um, so I go often to see Rembrandt as well. When you're working on a mural, is it harder to find those moments that sort of are a kind of architecture for the work, if you like? As you say, you're wrestling with the architecture of the space itself, but the painting still needs to work on painterly terms. So is it hard to find the central moments that sort of act as a kind of structure for it? Yeah, it's absolutely maddening. Um, (laughs) I do completely go quite loopy when I'm doing the murals. You can't do anything else. It's an extreme conversation on very specific terms. I'm absolutely more interested in the details rather than the event. I want the work to linger with you, to find you uh, at some later stage and impregnate something upon you that you take away from. So... The painting actually functions, the mural and and the paintings on canvas actually function on the third, fourth, fifth viewing. You have to spend time with the work. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm deeply skeptical of things that are like one-shot pass. If you can also detect a formula in, in how the work is made, I immediately reject it. I think formula painting, you know, belongs in the category of, of forgettable for me. You mentioned, and obviously this is not in terms of the iconography or anything, but you mentioned Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel in connection with making the murals. One of the things I've talked about quite a lot on this podcast is is the moral influence of artists and this kind of, you know, the examples from the past that kind of give you strength to do what you're doing. And I wondered if it was the fact that Michelangelo worked on his own, on you know, effectively working on his own in that extraordinary space. Is that, in a way, the kind of guidance from the past that works. Yeah, I I think Michelangelo is fascinating for me because he's faced with obviously a commission from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so there comes with that a certain degree of pressure, let's say. He is painting by himself. He's fired all of his assistants. And he's completely convinced that he's going to fail. You know, he's really sure that it's not going to work and that he's not up for the task. And inevitably, he perseveres. He paints the whole bloody thing in the wrong perspective for a couple of years. You know, he's faced with an enormous physical challenge of painting at that scale, at that height, without a cherry picker, you know, (laughs) like I do. Um, And you have an incredibly vivid color sense in that painting, which is just tremendous and not typical of the Mm. time. You know, I found that the Vatican for me is just too much. But absolutely, that room is insane. And the way they shoot you in is completely backwards, as we know. You know, you're coming at it the wrong way. And the part that's empty at the back is, of course, where you absolutely have to look at the painting. And I also just love those facts about the painting that we know now with time, which is that, you know, all of the homoerotic controversy and... Yeah, the painting of trousers on the Yeah, and some poor, some poor guy that had to do that later on. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's faced with the younger version of himself, which mm. I think is going to be very interesting for any artist if they can come to terms with looking at their work all their early work in one room. That must be incredibly overwhelming. Indeed. Um, let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? You know, I have always loved Peter Doig, and I've, I feel I would, it would be amiss to, to not mention him. I find it quite indescribable what he does on mm. the painted surface, and I think the, the kind of melancholy and sadness in his work mixed in with this sort of imbued feeling of life and energy this color sense is just Mm. extraordinary Uh, I painted a lot in the spirit of Peter Doig when I was a university student you know as all artists find their heroes Mm. and the people that influence them but he also had this quasi similar sort of situation of being surrounded by a North American Canadian landscape and then you know his move to tropical Mm. landscape and trying to process that and become part of that culture and understanding it and and those images really resonated with me you know this pink jesus with an upside down black rainbow it's also just kind of nuts um his work and it it brings me an enormous amount of joy 
It's, it's interesting that I, I completely agree with you. There's a sort of nuts quality to it. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier on about risk taking. It seems to me that he's consistently taking risks. Some of the imagery really takes you a while to kind of absorb and try to understand. A lot of it's obviously from other art and that sort of thing. Mm. But I like that. I like being challenged by painting like Peter's. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely challenging and to always find something new in it. No matter how many times I look at Peter Doig painting, there's always something in it the next time that I didn't see the first time. Um, and I was listening to some podcast or talk he was doing not too long ago, and it gave me um, an enormous sense of pleasure to hear him say that he had some paintings in his studio that he couldn't find resolution for for six or something odd years because I think that's one of the things that frustrates me the most when I'm working is not being able to let something go. So yeah, I decided I would incubate a few things that I couldn't find uh, a good path for. Right. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the things that is often assumed about artists who are successful, who achieve things, is that there's no doubt. You yeah. know, whereas actually yeah. any painter's life is just filled with doubt, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Maria Lastnick spoke a lot about painter's doubt and her own doubt. And that's something that I feel sometimes a little bit ashamed about because I doubt myself a lot in my work. I search a lot in my work. And I think inevitably, if you use the canvas as a place to search, you end up stumbling upon things you don't necessarily want to admit to. And then you have to consider and reconcile those things. Also, I think every artist is dealing with the enormity of understanding all of the things that have come before them, but yet still wanting to find their own position within that territory. At this point, I normally ask what artists have on their studio wall. We're sitting in your studio, and I can see that it's a pretty sparse studio, but you have a few things sort of lurking around. Tell us about what you do choose to have around you. I find it very difficult to look at any imagery whatsoever when I'm painting. The only image that I really keep in my studio is a picture of an old Greek statue, a female bust. I think it might be Aphrodite, I'm not sure, but it's in the Archaeological Museum in Athens. It's from the 4th or 5th century, and the eyelashes of the sculptor over time have leaked and oxidized, so there's a kind of tears. I keep that lady with me. But that's the only image in my studio. I can see her where we're sitting now. Yeah. And, and she's above your coffee machine. Yes. So I guess this is like a kind of, you're going over, you're taking a pause, you're making yourself a coffee. And there's an example of this intriguing image that you just keep returning to. Yeah, I actually print her off and uh, it's my own photograph. And I, I print her off and I install her in my workspace when I'm working in museums. I just feel a kind of immediate connection to to the space then and trying to carve out a place for yourself in it. And then I'm obviously a plant nut. So <laughs> I have a lot of particular plants, mostly ferns. But you need a lot of space for dreaming on the on the canvas. So if you clutter your space with too much information, it's impossible to find your path on the painting. Uh, I also work and live in my studio. So you're constantly kind of negotiating your partner, your domestic life, supper time, <laughs> all those things. So yeah, I do painting also in the wing on the other side of the studio where I can close the door. Um, because everyone needs a room of their own. <laughs> yeah. And does it, does it also help, though, in a way, to have those kind of domestic elements around you to a certain degree? Because one of the things, of course, again, as well as doubt, is as an artist, it's very easy to get so precious about your work that you almost become paralysed by that. And does the entrance of domestic elements of your life somehow help with that process? It's an interesting question, you know. I've thought about this a lot recently because the challenges of working from home are many, you know. I'm a very restless person, so when I'm at home, I find it difficult to separate what is working time and what is every other moment of the day. Um, inevitably, also, if you're having an argument with one of your paintings and it's sat next to you down the road you know, across the room there while you're having supper, you inevitably are having more of a conversation with the painting than you are with your dinner companion. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But then I also wonder, I, I don't like this feeling that you've got to, like, put on your painting clothes and go to your studio with the feeling that you're going to suddenly be making art. I don't think about art like that. So I like to be able to shift in between. 
Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The free app offers access to more than 75 cultural organisations through a single download, ranging from Dear Beacon and the Storm King Arts Centre in upstate New York to the Institute of Contemporary Arts and the Hayward Gallery in London. If you download Bloomberg Connects, one of the interactive guides you'll find is to New Contemporaries, which for more than 70 years has been giving recent graduates from UK art schools some of their earliest exhibition experience. You can explore that history in the app, including through alumni podcasts and films where artists remember the works they showed in New Contemporaries at the outset of their careers. There are also artist conversations, audio clips about particular techniques and approaches, including the use of collage and montage and explorations of the figure in painting. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? That's an easy one, the Serpentine, probably. Mm. When I arrived from Toronto about 13 years ago, I think the first show I saw there was a Rosemary Trockel show. Mm. I was not aware of Rosemary Trockel's practice, her work, that kind of work, um, and I was absolutely enthralled. I think I saw that exhibition 40 times. Um, and I love the feeling of approaching the Serpentine through the park and entering this kind of space to encounter something. In that particular Rosemary Trockel show, there was a very strange vitrine-like crib thing, and there was a baby inside of it, and she had this sort of, the baby had a kind of ill-fitting Snoopy costume. And then if you look closely, there's a large fly on the baby's cheek, and then every so often the fly, you know, flies off and keeps landing on the cheek. And this sort of menacing strangeness, the peculiarness of, of this really stayed with me, burnt like a little hole in my heart. And I, since then, I've discovered a lot of artists I wasn't aware. I, I wasn't aware of Rose Wiley's work. Mm. Uh, I absolutely loved that exhibition. Hilma of Clint, I know she was having a real moment when she had her Serpentine show as well. Mm. Um, it was pre-Guggenheim, though. I mean, pre, the, the Guggenheim yes. is seen as her moment, yeah. but the Serpentine show actually came first. Came first, it? yeah, and I was completely blown away by her work. Mm. There's been a lot of crackers there. There's something about a free gallery. You talked about how you were able to go and visit the Rosemary Truckle show 40 times or whatever. There's something about being able to wander in, isn't there? About you know, And that's obviously not unique to the Serpentine. We've got these extraordinary museums that we can all go in for free and see here in London as well. That sort of freedom just to pop in is somehow... It seems to be very useful for artists, apart from anything. Absolutely, yeah. And we're not too far from the British Museum, and I make a point of going there at least once or twice a month. Mm. Um, sometimes when I'm working on a show with a deadline even more just to kind of sift around a bit see all the other things that people have made thousands of years ago there's a particular line there that I'm very fond of so I go to see it often yeah I think you're absolutely right and I think that's what makes London unique you have great access to incredible world-class museums and institutions I go to the Chisholm Hill a lot Hmm. it's really important for artists to be able, and for everybody to be able to have that experience. Mm. I think that's why people carve out a chance to try and stay here, even though it becomes more and more economically difficult to stay in the center as an artist. Hence why I'm still working in a former ear, nose and throat hospital. Yeah. You to tell us about this, because this is a really interesting part of your path through your career. You're constantly in spaces which are to a certain extent, precarious. You're going mm. from studio to studio, which may at any given point be taken over by a developer and, and turned mm. into luxury flats or whatever. Mm. But it seems to have fostered a kind of interesting working mode for you. Yeah, maybe it's partially to do with my family sort of diaspora and the, and the movement of my family. But also I think... I think it's important for artists to to stay real, real to the place that they exist in. If you don't have that kind of feeling of having to carve something out, maybe something is lost. There are obviously moments where the burden of feeling the pressure that you might suddenly be booted out of a building, you know, isn't great. Um, it has its emotional wear and tear like anything else. But I also think you don't want a kind of Gucci effect with your work um, where suddenly you forget why it is you're bothering in the first place. And I'd always take a kind of 
improvised shabby building with energy and history than some glass prism. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think I said before that I spent a lot of time in Sicily um, and I was down there maybe six years ago and I'd been told by a friend of mine to go and visit these cells of prisoners held during the Spanish Inquisition um, and they had discovered these murals, wall paintings um, that had been unearthed in, in these cells. And so I, I went down to Palermo after I was doing a residency on an island called Favignana, not too far from where this spot was, and visited these murals. And there was one prisoner cell that, that female prisoners were held um, for trials and so on, and then the rest were male cells. And the, the female cells were, the paintings had been made with human fluids and they had taken like the clay and things off the floor and mixed them with different spices and powders and I'm I'm not sure how they got their hands on these things but theirs were incredibly colorful and the and the male ones were all black and white and they were also incredibly beautiful you know horrific because you know they were being tortured they could hear other people being tortured but the they had this impulse to make these incredibly touching depictions of of each other on these walls i felt like that was something i won't soon forget no i'm sure um, i wanted to ask you at this point about your childhood you talked about south africa and then brazil and i wondered did those experiences mark you at all or were you just too young then to absorb too much Definitely in South Africa, I was too young. I was just a baby. But then, of course, I went back as, a, as an adult. But definitely South America, Brazil was very strong in my reference pool, mm. um, mainly the tropical garden that our house was in, which was situated um, kind of very close to the Cocovada, so the Statue of Christ. So you could see that in the distance. And then everywhere was green. And we had a very lush, beautiful, kind of dense tropical garden and I spent a lot of time in the garden with my sisters and with my parents there was huge turtles walking around and those were kind of formative experiences that definitely penetrated something so they're in that memory bank that you talked about earlier on. yeah absolutely and then in the same way my mother cultivated an extraordinary garden in North America it took her many years to get it to a place that she was happy with but again a completely different environment She's an artist in her own right, in her garden. And there was a river at the bottom of it. And we grew up very much in the garden. I was interested, you know, sort of earlier in your career, you were talking about how you wanted to absorb the kind of, in a way, the kind of uncomfortable colour experiences that you were having growing up in suburbia. Mm -hmm. And so is your work, again, you know, we talk about toing and froing a lot. So I'm interested in this idea of colours not necessarily being just ones that you love or, or, or are kind of attracted to, others that sort of repel you in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because my mother created a sort of sanctuary inside of the house, we were on one hand immersed and surrounded by colors that were incredibly energetic and, you know, really inspiring, and then faced outside in the banality of the suburban beige. And I felt at that point, and my mother obviously gave me this narrative as well, that the colors were... um, visceral, almost almost disgusting, and something that we should definitely reject. Um, you know, and her act of resistance was to paint the house flamingo pink. So we were the women that lived in this pink house. And, you know, I think if you live in South Beach, Miami, this is not unusual, but for a small town, Markham, where everything was blue, brown, or a version of beige, Flamengo pink was was radical, and that was something that created an identity around us that I'm not sure she had predicted, but definitely played a role. And and we were grateful for this because I think we needed this. Mm. So I love that sort of idea that in a way your work has a kind of autobiography of colour experiences in it. So when you're looking at your murals, so much of that is finding its way into this environment that you create. Yeah, 
absolutely. Um, and you have to kind of hunt out the colors that you that you want because inevitably paint, when you put it down initially, does just look like paint. And I'm always trying to get the paint to feel like something that's not paint. I find it really frustrating when it looks and feels like paint. Um, and to do this, you have to modify the colors. You have to go against the color order. You know, I don't start with a color order. I wield color more than I pick color. And I think that's the conversation that belongs to me in the surface. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? It would be hard to narrow it down, but I always feel when I'm asked a question in this field, I always mention Maxine Kuhlman because she doesn't get enough face time. She's a poet, right? She's a poet. She was poet laureate. She's now um, deceased, but she came to writing at a very late age in her life. She was almost 40 when she began writing. She started writing through an adult learning class um, where she met Robert Frost in New Hampshire. And she started writing poems about her life, about farm life, about her children, about the nature that was surrounding her. She writes some, some of the, I think, some of the most touching, inexplicably sad poetry um, that's ever been written. And I think a lot about Maxine Kuhlman. I definitely read her every day. Uh, I've got all the collected poems. But she has this one particular poem called The Final Poem. And she's recounting a really savage reading at Breadloaf where Robert Frost is speaking to a group of young poets. And he's, he's like in a funk because he's raging at the fact that he's dying, that he's, it's, his time is almost up. And he's got this kind of handful of poets around him. And he's saying, you know, come out of the shadows, say something, call yourself poets. And most of the poets at this point, like, get up or, like, are very uncomfortable and rustle out, etc., And then he gets up with his cane and he flings this final exit line, which is make every poem your final poem. And Maxine Kuhlman's poem is basically this story as a poem, which now I've probably, you know, not done justice to. (laughs) However, you should look it up and read it for yourself. The way she speaks also, um, the way she delivers her poems, I found incredibly helpful when I first started giving readings because I used to get incredibly nervous and she was kind of saying you know glance up pause give them a moment to digest what you're saying the audience can't take in half of what you're saying but also just this woman who who felt like the subject of her life was worthy of consideration Um, and that nothing too small was irrelevant. You know, her existence became her subject matter, and, you know, killing before and killing after breakfast. She's talking about swatting um, moths from the bathroom, uh, the weird phallic nature of a light bulb, the way bodies resume their positions after lovemaking, all these things that I felt kind of took me into a space where I could start to consider that the experiences that I had were also worthy of consideration. And did you take that last poem comment to heart in terms of making art, you know, make every artwork like it's the last artwork? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I'm shaking my head because, yeah, I feel like that's perhaps my Achilles heel in in some sense. I produce very few paintings on canvas per year because I always kind of think that perhaps this work could be pushed a little further, could be taken a little further. And, you know, inevitably when you've accumulated a lot of information on the surface, the minute nuances that you do to the painting at the end can also destroy the work and you inevitably end up having to kind of find the roadmap for it again. So I play with fire a lot in my work when it is wrestling towards its end but I also think that's kind of my job. I want to ask about Murakami because I know you've spoken about him before. You're a big Murakami fan but I was really intrigued to hear that you actually like when you were making a mural you actually had a book of Murakami's up in the cherry picker with you. Is that right? Did I? Well, no, on a ladder, I think you might have said. On a ladder, maybe. Whatever I'm reading at the time usually gets covered in paint and comes around. Um, So it can't be very precious about books. I love Murakami. I, I just feel the world I slip into when he's... He's made it for me is one I can never quite predict, and I love the madness of it. Over the course of COVID, I read um, Natalia Ginsburg, who I think 
is an incredible author that I wasn't aware of. Lucia Berlin, Manual for a Cleaning Woman, that's a book that's really stayed with me that I read over and over again. Mm -hmm. Love short stories. Mm. Again, because my restless nature means that I'd like to read things and then move on and then come back. Which is not to say that I don't try with long. I've read all of Murakami's books, and some of them are quite hefty. Yeah, they are. <laughs> In terms of your experience of reading, I was intrigued by something that you said, and it made me think about the experience of, of making artworks as well, which is that, in a way, you become so attached to the story that you don't want it to end. You want to find that resolution, but also you're so embroiled in the language and the poetry of the thing that there becomes a certain sadness that it should come to an end. Yeah. And it seems to me that yes. that relates somewhat to what you're just saying about the experience of making a work and that wrestling with getting to completion and letting yeah. it go. Yeah, and then letting it go because you inevitably do let it go. You show it and then it goes out into the world and you never see it again. So every time you do that, it is kind of like you lose something. And I give so much of myself to my work, so you, you don't have those things around you to remind you what happened. You only have a kind of digital record of it, which is never an adequate substitute for the real deal. You know, I think painting in this day and age falls prey to the world wide web, which is the complete end of everything. <laughs> Yeah. for me. But I think I'm now remembering that with Mirakami's books, sometimes I get close to the end and I stall and stall and stall and stall because I kind of don't want to finish it. Which music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I don't really listen to music when I'm working too much anymore. I used to do that a lot. And then I would listen to a variety of things. I listen to a lot of Alice Coltrane, uh, a lot of Vivaldi or Max Richter doing Vivaldi, and a lot of rubbish, um, especially when I'm mad painting. But I don't know. As of late, I've kind of stopped doing that. I feel like if you listen and jam too much into your head, you can't find the rhythm of the work. And I'm always trying to negotiate my body and the surface. I like to hear if I'm approaching with grace or with fury or, you know, with confusion. You can tell a lot by your breath and by your body's own movement sound, Mm. how you're going to hit the surface. And so I've started listening more to my paintings. You have a conscious of the percussive nature of the brush against the canvas as well, because obviously mm-hmm. it, it's different if you're working on an unstretched canvas, say, or even on board or something. But sometimes that canvas can almost be like a drum, right? Yes, but I avoid this, like the plague. All my paintings are made on hard boards so that they retain the feeling of a wall. I don't like that drum echo sonic thing. Um, I also don't like it to feel like that you could pass and poke through it because I can be incredibly aggressive with my work at the various different phases of its life. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's funny, but yeah. What other media influence your work? You know, I'm not really a computer person. I think the street's my main collaborator, the urban environment. I don't like looking at art online so much, and I I don't have social media, I don't have all those things. So I think, for me, the urban environment is my collaborator, my my kind of companion, and I'm always trying to go out into it and bring things outside, inside, and vice versa, Um, and the feelings and the experiences of those places. I also think... I like to leave space for my own imagination, for my own perversion of whatever it is I'm feeling and seeing. I do read a lot. Um, I don't know how that filters in, but it must do somewhere. Mm. But I also like spending a lot of time with art in actual its physical context. It is interesting. I mean, Dominique Gonzalez first, who was actually the last guest on the podcast, was talking about the kind of collage that follows us like a trail that we form online. Mm. And sometimes to step out of that is actually useful, right, as an artist, especially if you are doing really physical work like yours. Yeah. Also because I think the paintings and the murals always start off very open. And as time pushes towards the kind of completion, you basically, you have to negotiate yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And I go through the murals like every inch of them, like I would a surface, every inch of the painting has to be justified. If I can move something, then I still will move it. You obviously have to settle somewhere. And in some sense, 
this settling is a compromise. But, you know, you cannot stay on one surface forever. Philip Guston has a great essay about this that I always read and reread. I think for me, if I spend too much time in the vortex of the device, the mobile device or the computer device, you miss everything that happens. And this is like a huge problem for people today that I want to get as far away from as possible. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I sometimes do this batty thing where I go out and put my feet on a bit of bare earth to get the feeling of all the energy and life and all the things that are happening underneath. And it gives you this great kind of minute to understand also that you're on some like flaming ball of <laughs> gas in the universe it's a rooting experience yeah effectively. yeah rooting and letting go at the same time i think so i do that <laughs> um i wondered also about your old baggy root drawings mm-hmm. uh, which almost seem to me to be like a kind of diaristic kind of practice mm-hmm. which seems outside of a lot of what else you're doing is that is that fair yeah that's fair uh, i use this as a daily ritual when i'm in the studio to kind of suck out and remember some of the characters I've come in contact with. You know, abstraction for me is never really abstract. I don't consider myself a complete abstract painter. So I think if I don't get my faces out, my animal morphing bodies, I would somehow lose that. And so many of the faces don't materialize. So I make up dozens and dozens of them, and most of the time nobody appears. There has to be something that kind of comes up on the surface and then you're really looking at a strange little person and I always find this incredibly moving right and in terms of showing them because obviously you don't show every single one no most of them I throw out I destroy I don't keep the ones that where nobody's arrived right and that's so interesting because again it becomes a kind of a dialogue with your own memory doesn't it then in the sense that you have to be transported back to your experience of that person effectively for them to reappear for you yes. on the surface of the paper yeah and you fudge it and fubble it and all the weird quirks of people's physical presence come out on the painted surface and I love that about work you know you really see the humanness in what essentially connects us all And I always think of people as animals and animals as people. You know, aren't we all dogs, really? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think of myself more as a dog. But yeah. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? You know, that one's tricky because the possession of artworks kind of puts me in a slippery territory. And I feel conflicted about ownership and art, even though I am inevitably a part of a system that commodifies my work and for which work is commodified. If you could live with a perfect copy of another work of art, what would it be? (laughs) No, I I don't only mean it like that. We all, yeah... We all have our favorite things, though, that, um, things that you couldn't live without. If the world was going to burn down, I'd be, I'd be running to the Prado to get the Goyas. I think Alice Neal does something to me always that is unforgettable and unreplaceable and indescribable. Mm. I think her work is absolutely transformative. So I think I would pick this great Alice Neal early watercolor, and she's pictured herself on the loo. She's having a wee, and um, her partner, lover, whatever at the time, one of the Rothschilds, is John Rothschild, is also naked, peeing into the sink. So she's peeing into the toilet, he's peeing into the sink, and they've just made love. And she's kind of depicted herself quite sexy. You know, if anyone knows a bit about Alice Neal, she had a very quick wit and Mm. was incredibly funny about how she said that she imagined herself this completely different sexual being and what she ended up with with what she considered a kind of frumpy body just an incredible artist painting in her kitchen most Mm. of her life you know her early partner I think burned like 60 or 100 of her early paintings in some kind of Uh, rage at some point anyway but this painting kind of captures this perfect imperfect moment of two people that have shared some kind of experience of of being together and the sinks like strangely not attached to anything in the painting it's kind of floating in weird space and she feels great she's got her arms above her head and she's got her head kind of tilted back and I would love to live with that painting and lastly, what's art for? 
I suspect everybody has a very different feeling about that, so I can only probably answer for myself. Art gives me a place to to be, to hang out. I'm incredibly grateful for this space. Um, I use it as my way of of whittling the world down to kind of make it more manageable, more real to me. It ironically becomes more real to me through the making of it. It's not a proximity to reality. It is my version of reality. And so it accumulates all the things that happen to me and all the things that don't happen to me. You know, in that great feeling about the Alice Neal painting we were just speaking about, but the, the fantasy of of life, what, what it might have been, uh, what it might have looked like. And art gives you this license to let all the things you have and don't have exist somewhere. Megan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Megan Rooney's With Sun is in Fugues in Colour at the Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris until the 29th of August. She's also in the group exhibition Saturation at Tadeus Ropac in Pantin in Paris until the 24th of September. She'll have a solo exhibition at Tadeus Ropac in Paris in early 2023. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentle. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. And a huge thank you to Megan Rooney. This is the last of this series, but we'll be back in August with four more episodes. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.